Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. So my name is Russell Kelty. I'm the acting curator of Asian art here at the Art Gallery of South Australia. And today we're going to be talking about this exhibition, A Vast Emporium, Artistic uh, Exchange and Innovation in a Global Age. And it charts the interaction between Euro largely European and Asian, but also inter-Asian interaction from 16th to 19th century, what I like to call the first iteration of the global age in the world. We often consider ourselves part of, you know, kind of part of this wonderful collection of global partners today, but the first iteration was in the 16th century. And while Europe was an important factor and became ever increasingly so over time, Asian, inter-Asian exchange had been going on for quite a long time prior to the arrival of Europeans. And so it's important to keep that in mind. China, Indonesia, Japan, India had all been trading well long before Europeans arrived on the scene. But as is often the, the case, uh, you know, the European perspective has provided us some interesting encounters uh, and interesting ways of viewing the world. So we will, that will be one of the main avenues through which we kind of undertake this journey. There are four galleries in this display, which actually felt like more of an exhibition to me because I think there's over 100 and some odd works of art. I haven't counted yet. Uh, and it runs roughly 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th century. Uh, after we have a chance to walk through here, we'll go upstairs and we'll see a couple of works of art that will be going on display in November. And then we'll wander into the Elder uh, because uh, Tracy Locke, uh, who curated and Elfreak, who curated the, the Elder Wing, which I'm sure you've been through before. Uh, we had long conversations about the interaction in the 19th century and importance of Japanese, Chinese, and Indian art, and North African art in particular, which is represented quite beautifully up there. If you're interested in this topic more after uh, our discussion tonight, uh, I would recommend that you either check this out or you purchase a copy of this. It's called Treasure Ships, Art in the Age of Spices. And this was a book that James Bennett, the former curator of Asian art, who's now at the Museum and Art Gallery of the Northern Territory in Darwin, uh, edited. Uh, it has authors from around the world. I think there's 15 authors altogether. And it really charts the idea, James's idea, that this whole age of globalization in the 16th to 19th century was actually uh, provoked by Europeans' insatiable desire for spices which were to be found in Indonesia and resulted in this amazing collection of trade that would happen of cloth and gold and ceramics and spices. So interesting book. You're more than welcome to take a look uh, and you can buy them uh, from the bookshop uh, online as well. So I think we'll, we'll get started. Before I do, I just want to introduce my assistant, Yue Shou Shen. She is uh, actually just graduated from uh, the University of South Australia today, uh, arts and cultural management with a master's. So, you know, congratulations. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, and she will be providing, obviously, uh, as a native to Fujian province, which is in southern China and was uh, a major porcelain manufacturer as well as export, uh, place of export to around the world. She'll be actually connecting some of these things that we often see as historical to contemporary society in China. And so it's important when you're walking through this is I know it's easy to kind of lapse into this oh, this is old, this doesn't have relevance today. But UHO will try and bridge that gap and provide some contextual uh, information about some of these works that, are, that came about in this period and are still used today in China. So what, what would I like to say first about this, this display? Well, this era is not simply about history. It's not simply about kind of encounters, but it's also about fashion. It's about style. And it's about the movement of these amazing commodities throughout the world, uh, largely from the 16th, 17th, and even 18th century, Asia was this great powerhouse of material culture. You had, of course, Chinese porcelain, which was, is still today. When your mother and grandmother on Sunday afternoon says we're going to have a roast, she brings out the good. China. China, there you go. So you didn't even know, how, you don't even have to, it's one word, it's like Madonna or Cher, you know, it's like China. Everybody knows it's an emblem of uh, wealth, style, sophistication, even to today. You know, blue and white is this amazingly simplistic design, and yet it's one of those successful in the world, in world history. Textiles from India, so spectacular in the fact that they were steadfast, their colors lasted, they were vibrant beyond anything Europe could imagine. 
lacquer from Japan, silk from China, all of these amazing commodities which have been traded for hundreds upon thousands of years in Asia were first, you know, this is the first time that Europeans have it uh, en masse. For the first time, these great ships plying the Indian Ocean and beyond could bring back a wealth of these ceramics, textiles, as well as precious materials, such as mother of pearl, uh, as well as a wealth of you know, flora and fauna. And the first work I'll, I'll just talk about today is this single uh, six-panel screen, uh, which is created about 1600 in Japan, probably in Kyoto. And what it depicts is the arrival of the black ship, or the Kurofune, as it was known in Japanese, the Portuguese Carrick. And the Portuguese Carrick was spectacular in many ways because there was nothing as big as it in Asia. It could carry a wealth of material. It also have, if you look closely, cannons. And so we see firearms start to be introduced uh, to Asia as well. And when the Europeans first arrived in Asia, remember Vasco da Gama, if you reach back in your memory and history, Vasco da Gama in 1498 managed to go down around the Cape of Good Hope which was known up until then as the Cape of Disaster because so many ships had been thrown about at, sh at the rocks of uh, Southern Africa and into the Indian Ocean. He arrives on the west coast of India and he immediately goes to the local ruler. The ruler welcomes him and he says, what do you have to trade? And he brings but tawdry textiles from, and bad ceramics from Europe and he says, please go back to Europe and when you get something good, come back and we'll trade again. You know, so there's this real imbalance in what was being traded. The Carrick and the Portuguese uh, plied their way from Portugal, Lisbon, all the way to Goa, then to Malacca, then to southern China, and Japan was the end route of that. It was the terminus of Asia. As one author has written, uh, you know, breadcrumbs sprinkled on the side of the continent of Asia. And what this depicts is the arrival of the Portuguese and their grand Carrick. Now, if you look at the crew that are, are sliding along the lines and the masts, they're actually not all Europeans. There's many Africans, Southeast Asians, because along this two-year journey, quite often people would die, about 50% attrition rate of the crew. And so you see a quite international crew uh, wearing very uh, European dress, pantaloons and, and uh, ruffled uh, neck lace. They actually arrive on, the, on an undesignated port, uh, and you see this disembarkation of this rather emaciated looking elephant. The artist who drew this probably had never seen an elephant before, he's imagining it up. A frisky looking tiger, Arabian horses, some kind of strange squirrel looking thing, probably as well made up. And the captain uh, with an umbrella over his head being greeted by Christian Jesuits and European Jesuits. Now if you look closely at the Europeans, you'll see that they're not particularly handsome. They have these kind of bald heads with these sausage noses. Uh, you know, they're, they're not painted in the most glorious light. And you'll see this again and again and again. Asian representations of Europeans, it's often quite unflattering, uh, uh, which is always fascinating to me. Now, if we, if we could step back circa 1600, we may see that this would have had a companion panel, another six-panel screen, uh, where the ship is de depicted de uh, leaving southern ports of China, traveling to Japan. So this connection with these screens was not only to European passage and European ships and people, but it was also to China because Japan and China have this ongoing relationship for thousands of years, cultural and otherwise. Now, what's most interesting about these screens is that they're probably not real. And when I say that, this is not a first-hand rendering of the arrival of a Portuguese ship. It probably is a bit of a fantasy created by these artists to give to uh, well-to-do shoguns and uh, warlords of the period uh, to put in their grand mansions and castles. And you have to remember that this isn't simply a painting, it's a screen. It's a room divider, byobu, uh, Japanese screen uh, known as byobu, uh, roughly translates as kind of wind stopper. Created from around the 12th century, it has an internal latticework frame of, of wood and then multiple layers of paper, and then cut gold sheets for the clouds, and then would have been painted upon. And so it would have been seen not only as a painting for a room, but also maybe as a bit of a talisman for good luck and good fortune uh, with trade in Japan. Now these two works uh, next to each other 
are often described in Japan and around the world as Namban. And Namban means Southern Barbarian. And when they say Namban, they're actually referring to people like us, uh, Westerners who would have arrived in Japan. The Portuguese brought not only, not only um, these great ships that could carry things around Asia, but they also brought ideas, European kind of forms. And so we see on this, this beautiful coffer that it's not a Japanese form, it's a European form, but with Japanese style lacquer uh, and also inlay of mother of pearl. Now these styles weren't simply Japanese styles, these became international styles. You have to remember that the Carricks not only went to Japan, they went to the Philippines, and then they went across the Pacific to Acapulco. So it's actually recorded that in Mexico City, there were Japanese screens similar to this being created by local Mexican artists inspired by screens such as this. So these are not simply uh, East Asian or even Asian styles. They actually become an international style around the world. Namban lacquer in particular uh, is highly regarded by Jesuits and highly regarded by people in uh, monasteries. So often the, the accoutrements of presenting Christianity is done so through uh, the uh, not lack Japanese lacquer in particular. Now, if you look above this, you'll see a rather uh, bold and fantastic design of elephants uh, on an Indian textile made probably uh, in the mid 18th century. Uh, mahouts on top of these fantastic elephants, horses, uh, these really quite wonderful designs. And it's important to remember that India didn't just create cotton textiles for export, but also silk made in Gujarat. And this particular type of uh, garment is known as a patola. Patola are amazing for many reasons. One, because they're so vivid and, one, and spectacular, but also the way that they're made, I still, after five or six years of studying these things, cannot believe that they're made in this particular way. The, each individual strand is tied off and dyed before it's woven. So the artist has to know how exactly each one of these strands is going to appear in this very complex weave before they even start working on it. That's amazing, spectacular. And so Patola uh, became, much like lacquer, became a real, uh, a really important commodity for Indonesia. And that's where a lot of Indian textiles went. Some went to Europe, some went to Japan, but mainly they went to Southeast Asia where cloth became the way of trading. It became the, essentially money. Uh, the, the quality of your cloth would get you better spices, which you could trade for better, more gold or silver and so on and so forth and bring back to Europe. Now, if you just turn towards UA Show, uh, you'll see these two wonderful columns. And uh, it may surprise you that these, these came into the collection, I believe, in 2013. And originally, they were in the uh, private chapel of Imelda Marcos. Now, some of you may remember Imelda Marcos. She was, had a great uh, love of shoes. Uh, she also was a devout Catholic, and as many people in the Philippines are. It's, and it's important to remember that when these ships were coming across the oceans, they weren't only carrying commodities and intriguing crews. They were also carrying, of course, uh, Jesuit uh, monks and priests. Uh, and Christianity was one of the main reasons that the Portuguese wanted to send ships and find a way into Asia so that they could proselytize. And so Christianity becomes a really important factor in, in, um, in Japan in particular uh, and throughout Asia. Uh, and so these columns were created for that specific purpose. Now, if you turn your chairs uh, and look inward, you'll see this rather intriguing box. And I'm gonna ask you to actually get up and wander around and tell me what you see on the box and what do you think it was made for? Ah, uh, it could be a spice box. Could be a spice box. Do you think it's European or, or Asian? Uh, could be quails, yep, yeah. could be quails. It could be Asian. Asian, yes, yeah. And w if you look on top, what do you see? Elephants. Elephants, yeah. Oh, so made in India. Yeah, it's made in India, exactly. So when Europeans arrived, particularly on the west coast of India, they had to gradually get used to living on the floor on top of textiles, sitting on the floor was customary in India at the time. But when they returned to their own domain, their own uh, setting, they wanted something that they could recognize. And so it, 
they contacted Indian artists and said, can you make me a box like this, which this is a writing box based on European precedent. And the Indian artist said, of course we can make this, but we're going to make it in an Indian fashion and decorate it. So, so it's lavishly decorated with uh, ivory uh, on each side other than the bottom and opens up and obviously has a number of drawers which you can pull out uh, to put in your various writing accoutrements, spices, anything that was particularly valuable. Now what's fascinating is if you look at the lid, it has an amorous couple on either side of a flowering tree, birds and so forth, but it looks like it was actually attached the wrong way. <laughs> so when you look at it straight on, you're actually looking at it upside down. And there's Persian, these are these rather strange and mythical looking uh, dragon type bird carrying the tiny elephants are actually called Simurg or Persian, they're from Persian myth and folklore. Now I'll just point out one last thing before we move into the next gallery. Uh, if you want to come over and look at this cabinet, it's called a contador. And again, uh, it looks very familiar, probably uh, it is European inspired, but made in India. There's a very specific motif that you can see on it spread all over. And this is known in Indonesian as a kawang motif. It's known in Japan as shippo. And it's a series of interlocking circles. You can see the exact same design on that textile, Indian textile meant for the Indonesian market. Shippo, S-H-I-P-P-O and Kawang, K-A-W-U-N-G. So not only are forms and different types of art making themselves known throughout the world, but also uh, icons and motifs are becoming international. So this idea, you know, this is like uh, 16th, 17th century Louis Vuitton, LV, you know, Coco Chanel. You can see it everywhere. It appears on every, you know, appears around the world. This contador is you know, beautiful on the top, bottom, and side, but if you actually look at the back, it's undecorated. And so when you're looking at this, you may think this is spectacularly beautiful, and it is, but this is like uh, historical Ikea. In India, it would have been created, it would have been packed down, put on a ship, brought to Europe, and then when it was brought up to Europe, it would have been reassembled uh, to, you know, to great effect. Now, if you look at the legs, the legs look like mermaids, but actually they have a, a bindi on the top of their forehead. So, uh, you know, we're not quite sure exactly what type of Hindu god this is based on or what type of Hindu uh, deity this is based on, but it most definitely is Hindu. It's not a mermaid per se. But again, it's this most fantastical piecing together of all these different international kind of trends and forms. How is that, is it painted or? No, so what it is, it's, it's in, it's, it's, this is uh, ivory inlay, and then this is, would be a different type of wood inlay, and I think that's ebony, the darker wood, all inlay. Yeah, so quite spectacular, quite beautiful. And I think, you know, this is the real beauty of this show is looking closely will reward you quite substantially. You know, these things were meant to be appreciated, uh, they were meant to be uh, kind of showstopper pieces. And, uh, you know, they were meant for the higher, higher echelons of society throughout Asia and Europe. So with that, I think we'll move on. So if the Portuguese were the great conveyor of things around the world, and that was their, per their, their kind of uh, place, their role to play in the great, our, the great world trade that was taking place in the 16th, early 17th century, they were taken over, or the, the routes were taken over by the Dutch. And the Dutch, uh, in the late 16th, early 17th century, created something new in the world. Uh, they created the first publicly traded uh, company, multinational company, and it was called the Dutch East India Company, or the United East India Company. It was based in the Netherlands, and they uh, essentially had stock, they had partners, who funded shipments and movement of, of ships around the world and the establishment of what are known as factories in India, Japan. The biggest factory, of course, was based in Batavia, Jakarta, present day, and substantial amounts of Indian trade textiles uh, were funneled through Jakarta uh, and on to the aristocracy of Indonesia. And obviously, uh, even today, uh, cloths that are still in situ in Indonesia, as well as the Chinese and Japanese ceramics, is quite substantial 
if you walk around uh, some of the major sites in Indonesia, you can still trip upon the shards of you know, Ming and Qing uh, period vases and porcelain bowls and so forth. Uh, and many uh, mosques have uh, great collections of Chinese and Japanese porcelain. So there was an immense wealth in Java, uh, partially due to the uh, spices that were being traded uh, uh, throughout the archipelago, such as cinnamon and cardamom and things like this. Now, the Dutch um, had a very different way of approaching Asian trade. Unlike the Portuguese, they didn't bring their gods with them. They left God at home and brought all the goods. And so many Asians found this to be uh, quite suitable for their trade, although their ruthlessness um, was quite substantial in the 18th and 17th century. And that's something we're not going to really delve into today, but uh, it's something to keep in mind. If you look to your right, you can see uh, a Dutch scholar in his studio. And this is a great microcosm of what the Dutch were thinking at the time. This is 17th century. You can see a Dutch scholar with a bird of paradise feather in his hat, a North Indian rug over his table, uh, an, a, a globe actually representing the new world of America. Uh, there's a conch shell up in the left-hand corner. And on the right-hand side is a chris, a royal, uh, a royal sword used by the aristocracy of Indonesia, uh, particularly Java. And the Dutch, like the Portuguese, uh, didn't really bring much in terms of trade, but they brought ships that could move things. And one of the things they moved a lot, of course, was Chinese porcelain. And so when you look in this, uh, these, show, these showcases beside you, you'll see that there's an array of Chinese porcelain and imitation porcelain. So at the end of 1600s, porcelain created in China, kind of classic blue and white for export. Uh, there's uh, Dutch, Persian copies. And if you go all the way to the end, you can see Japanese copies. There's a specific name for this type of porcelain. It's called crack, K-R-A-A-K. -A -A and it's believed that this comes from the word carrick, uh, the Portuguese carrick, which they were transported on. There's also some people that believe it was an interpretation of a Dutch verb meaning uh, thinly potted or tendency to crack, which many of these wares were. Now, just to give you some sense of timing and context, this uh, gourd vase, uh, which looks similar to the pumpkins that you get at Kohl's every week to make pumpkin soup, uh, would have been created in 1600, around the time that Shakespeare was creating some of his most spectacular plays. So 400, 500, 400 years old or so. And it represents a melange of floral, and floral motifs that appear constantly on Chinese uh, export ware. Now beside it is a bowl uh, with this beautiful rabbit in the center, deer on the side, emblematic of, of what we can consider you know, Chinese emblems, Chinese symbols. And to discuss a little bit about the symbols and how they appear today as well, uh, Yue Shou will, will talk to you a bit about that. Hi, my name is Yue Shou Shen, and I come from Fujian province of China. Uh, I chose to talk about this bowl is because it has a rabbit inside, and my spiritual animal is rabbit, so I feel very connected to it. Um, the symbols on the bowl, it has a hair, some deers, uh, the chrysanthemum, chrysanthemums, and peaches. All of them are symbols of longevity. Um, the peaches is believed, or the sacred peaches is believed to grow in the heaven palace. Um, if you eat it, you will be immortal. And the deers is also an animal, the only animal who can found the sacred fungus of immortality. And the Taoist doughty show love is often appeared in the image with a deer. And this show, the belief of show love is also spread to Japan, where Fukulokuju is, um, is named in Japan. And the hair um, is make its first appearance on the bull and wild wares since the Ming Dynasty, and it's often found in Jiajing period wares. Uh, in Taoism, it's associated with the moon, because we believe there's a hair in the moon called the jade hair, and it's pounding the elixir of immortality. Uh, and also, there is a deity, a goddess, called Chang'e, living in the moon alone. Uh, this belief is spread to other countries in Asia, like Japan, Korea, Vietnam, Malaysia, Singapore, and so on. Um, 
Uh, last Tuesday was the Mid-Autumn Festival. It's when we celebrate the full moon of the autumn and Chinese people eat mooncake. So if you go to the Asian supermarket, you will find um, the package of the mooncakes has the image of a rabbit pounding something. Uh, the rabbit is pounding the uh, ingredients of mooncake. And interestingly, in Japan, uh, it's believed the hair is pounding the ingredients of mochi, is a kind of rice cake. And from this bowl, you will see how cultures are inter-influenced on each other in Asia. Now, one thing I, I didn't say was that blue and white you may associate with Ming Dynasty, as Yue Shou was saying. But blue and white, the style and design of blue and white, is actually an inter-Asian creation. Persians in the early first millennium were creating works, uh, kind of ceramics, what's known as fritware. It's not porcelain. It's kind of loose stoneware that had this blue and white. And it was made, the blue was made from cobalt, which is exceptionally uh, expensive. Those were shipped along the Silk Road to China, and the Chinese thought, well, if, we, if they like blue and white, why don't we put blue on white on something really spectacular like porcelain and then ship it back to them? And indeed, they did. And porcelain became known in Persia in particular as diamond-like. The cobalt color was Mohammedan blue, representing this kind of you know, really intense spirituality. And so blue and white itself is this beautiful circular creation. Uh, created first in Persia, transported to uh, China, and then back again. And the real secret of porcelain, which many artists still use today, uh, many of them in Adelaide, such as uh, Gus Clutterbuck, Jerry Wedd, some of you may have seen their works, is really called the, the mineral called kaolin. It's this white chalky material, which when it's uh, put into a kiln, it vitrifies to almost a glass-like quality. And that's where porcelain gets its amazing durability as a product. Uh, as well as the, uh, this pristine, beautiful shimmer, which everybody knows and loves. Now, when you uh, have a closer look at this, I would recommend you take a look at blue and white, this Ming period, 1630s dish with uh, geese coming into roost on a riverbed, which is kind of uh, framed by this Persian-looking star and then auspicious, auspicious peaches and fans on the outside. And look at a uh, plate created in the Netherlands in the 1730s. It's almost identical. Actually, if you want to come up and look at it, it's worth a look. It's almost identical uh, to the, the Chinese precedent. So the Chinese ware was being shipped to the Netherlands, and ne Dutch uh, ceramics makers were copying it almost to the mark for a, you know, to sell to the market. And you have to remember the Netherlands in the 17th century was one of the richest places in the world, largely because of Asian trade. And, you know, things like tulips became exceptionally, uh, exceptionally expensive. A bulb, one bulb of a tulip, there was a kind of tulip mania in the 1630s. And one bulb from the Ottoman Empire, trans transported from the Ottoman Empire, uh, was, uh, you know, the same cost as a house in downtown Amsterdam. So these commodities, you know, at times broke people's banks, banks because they were so expensive. The next plate is actually created in Iran and looks very similar to this crack uh, style with those cavet, the kind of segments on the cavetto and then this interior scene of nature scene. The next work uh, was actually not created in uh, Jingdezhen, which is where all the imperial material was, and crackware was created for export. This was actually created in southern China, in Dehua, uh, in Fujian province, which Yue Shou is from. And Yue Shou is going to talk a little bit about it because it looks rather intriguing. It looks Buddhist. It could look Christian. It's actually a confluence of uh, you know, Chinese religions and beliefs as well as introduced religions and beliefs. So UA Show is going to talk a little bit about the iconography on that. So this blank chain Guanyin was produced in Dehua of Fujian province, where I came from. Um, uh, Guanyin is the equivalent term of Avalokitesvara. It means the one who perceives the sounds of the world. So it's connected with mercy. And this Guanyin here can sh uh, show us how Buddhism came to China and been localized and uh, be combined with the Taoism beliefs in China. So if you look at her, you will find she is wearing a loose robe with, uh, which opens a chest. So um, 
originally Avalokitesvara was androgynous. Um, but when it came to China, it was localized as a female deity, a goddess. Um, it's oftentimes associated with uh, maternity. And if you look at her, um, it, uh, it has an infant on her, in her hand. It's, the, uh, it's her disciple, Mu Jia. It's a figure of Taoism. And on her right hand side, there's a girl called Long Nu. It's the granddaughter of the Dragon King also another figure of Taoism. But on her left-hand side is Satara, or Shantai, as we call it. Uh, is her Indian disciple. And there's a vase on her right-hand side. It contains the pure water, which can relieve the suffering of the unfortunate. And the white parrot on her uh, left-hand side is a very common bird in Tang Dynasty China, and it represents filial piety. And nowadays, uh, blanket Qingguan is still very popular, especially in a devout Buddhism family like mine. Uh, I remember that my family took me to the Hua to purchase uh, one of them. And in, it has very different, it has lots of different forms. Uh, if, and th these different forms can reveal how a family uh, wants more, what, what, what one family wants more. For example, if you have this kind of guanyin with children, then it means this family uh, wants fertility. They want children, especially boys. And thanks to my mom, um, we don't have this at our home. We have another kind of guanyin holding a vase on her left hand and a branch of willow on her right hand. So she can spread the pure water to the world to relieve the suffering. And sometimes there's a guanyin in the form of riding a wave. Uh, it's associated with the ocean because it's believed that uh, guanyin can guide uh, the seamen and fishermen and guide them safely home. So it's more common in the coastal province in China. And nowadays we, can, um, we don't say we put guanyin somewhere, we say we ask her. So <laughs> we ask her, to be on our altar or to just be one of our home decoration. <laughs> you always ask the deities. You never put them anywhere they don't want to be. <laughs> That's bad luck. <laughs> so one thing that Yue Shou didn't say is that this 17th century sculptures like this, created in Dehua, were used in China, also exported to Europe for as a Christian deity. Uh, Europeans often perceive this as you know, Saint the Virgin Mary. And then in Japan as well, hidden Christians use this as a way of hiding their religion from vengeful shoguns uh, because they would see it as Buddhist, but in fact, it could be any number of things. And so this era is not only about the, the movement and confluence of different styles and designs and fashions, but it's also you see religions and sacred perspectives coming together in forms that can be interpreted in different ways throughout the, throughout the world. Now, if you look down, this, down the rest of this, you can see that there's, a lot, there's Japanese porcelain, there's German-like porce, German porcelain created with chinoiserie figures. So the blue and white is transformed throughout the world in different ways and different fashions. If you look behind you, you can see some rather curious looking blue and white. And what do you see on it? Can anybody tell me? Coconuts. Could be peaches. Is there anything in particular you see on it that you didn't see on any other blue and white? Ah, and lettering from what particular, uh, what shall we say, language? Yeah, English alphabet. So these were made in Japan. When the Ming Dynasty collapsed and the Dutch couldn't find any porcelain in China to export, they looked towards Japan and Japan started to create porcelain. And these works, if you look at the top one, the plate, it actually has a symbol in the middle. It has a V, an O, and a C. And this is actually the trademark, the symbol of the United Dutch East India Company, the VOC. So not only were the, the Dutch East India Company the first multinational corporation, they, were one, they trademarked everything. Uh, not only the VOC appears there, but it also appears on this, this quite large cabinet created in Batavia. You can see uh, the crest, the Dutch crest even to today is still used, two lions on the side, a crown, and then VOC in the middle. And we've actually, when you turn the lock on this, 
there's a bell that goes off. And so if anybody was trying to get into your, uh, your large chest without your permission, you, you know, they could hear the bell and so you'd come down and come running. Now we'll just scoot over here really quickly and take Where's a look. Batavia Batavia? Jakarta. Okay. So same thing, just a, a different, uh, different name at the time, 17th century, 18th century. Now, as I was saying before, we were looking at the black ship screens. Uh, you know, foreigners are represented in often an intriguing light, particularly Europeans. Uh, this painting from the early 20th century in Bali depicts the tale of Panji, uh, quite an important tale in Indonesia, uh, often represented in Wayang and other uh, forms. And it depicts actually the arrival on these ships of Malayu peoples wearing very interesting colored uh, textiles, Indian trade textiles, uh, as well as Dutch people or kind of uh, satire of Dutch. These ugly looking long nosed people with Dutch hats often transporting and moving things onto the shore, which are quite different from the more uh, sophisticated aristocracy of Java and Malay. Now, if you look at the top, you can actually see that there's a Dutch man who's in the guise of what looks like a Chinese trader in an opium den, feeding opium to these, uh, the, the Balinese, or sorry, the Javanese on Tuban. So the Dutch were not necessarily always associated with positive things, and particularly in this period, they were having quite a detrimental effect on Bali and Java. Here they are carrying guns and swords. Uh, a different perspective on this are these pair of hand scrolls from Japan from the 18th century. And on the right-hand side, you have a rather large enlarged Chinese junk ship, which would have come from a southern port in China. And if you look at the characters who inhabit this ship, who do they, what, who do they look like? Do they look European? Do they look Asian? What do you think? Not that we want to indulge in racial stereotypes, but you know, <laughs> 18th century Japan. Yes. Yeah, it can be either um, European or Central Asian. Could be probably a mixture of both. And this feeds into this, this story or this concept in Japan of what's known as the Takarabune, the treasure ship. And it's believed that the treasure ship, filled with Chinese, Indian, and Japanese gods, would arrive at your house on New Year's. And if you had a, quite an auspicious dream, either of an eagle, Mount Fuji, or an eggplant, it meant that your, your year was going to be quite auspicious. And so, uh, it's funny to me looking at this because the size of the figures on the boat, they're huge. They're like giant figures. And so there's no way this boat could have transported these figures for a very uh, long stretch. They're bigger than the masts themselves. And if you look actually on the land, you can see Indian textiles hanging in the tatami mat at the doorway of tatami mat rooms, small children dressed in these exotic and opulent dress, um, Chinese Ming period figures. This was created a bit later, so interesting that they're, do, that they're using a kind of uh, stock image of Ming, Ming people. And on the other side, you can see things such as the pounding of mochi, which uh, Yue Shou was talking about here, the big mallet and the kind of moving of the mochi, um, as well as people playing uh, ego, I believe is in there, and maybe not in this one. There's traders coming into town. They're trading bolts of textiles, ceramics. Uh, they're actually grilling the mochi here on a hibachi type of, uh, type of thing. Uh, and so these scrolls weren't made uh, as a realistic depiction of trade. They were made as talismans of good luck for merchants probably in Osaka at the time. Uh, quite beautiful. Uh, if you look at the colors, you know, the colors and the flecked gold are really spectacular these blue and pink clouds that are kind of hovering over the land is quite, quite wonderful. The colors themselves are exceptionally vibrant, which you don't see a lot with scrolls of this age. And you may wonder why the interior of these houses are green, the flooring is green, because when tatami mats are freshly cut, they actually look green and then they fade to a brown. So this, is, this means, you know, wealthy person freshly cut tatami, uh, tatami mats. Now, if you look to the right, you'll see... Yeah, yeah, so these would have been... Um, I don't, I can't remember if lapis was used for the green, but it would have been used for the blue. So very precious minerals would have been used to actually color this out. So it's very expensive and whoever commissioned this would have had quite a uh, great deal of money, possibly a merchant at the time. And how much longer is it? 
I believe they're three meters each. Or they might be longer than that. I'd have to look. In Treasure Ships actually has it in there, so the dimensions of it. But quite long. This is the second roll we've done uh, during the exhibition. So if porcelain was the great Chinese gift to the world, then textiles were the great Indian gift to the world. Uh, Indian cotton ruled the world, was seen as a commodity, and it's only in the 18th, you know, 19th century that Europeans come up with something. They could create machine-printed textiles that could kind of overwhelm the Indian market. If you look around at these textiles from India, here, here, and here, you can see the vibrancy of the red, the beauty of the blue, and the spectacular nature of the creation. I'll just point to um, this particular row of three, two Indian textiles and one uh, Sumatran uh, uh, backrest for a throne. And in the center, you see a number of different motifs. Can anybody point out some of the motifs you see? Tree, yep. What else? You may need to get close. Getting closer always rewards. Remember that. Flowers could be chrysanthemums, yep. Anything else? What else do you see? Ah, uh, that's probably more like a tree or a limb. Yeah, yep. What else do you see? What about the design? What's the design like? Is it asymmetrical, symmetrical? Mirror image, very important, very important. Anything else? What's the tree kind of flowering out of? What is that mass, that lump at the bottom of the textile that the tree is coming out of? Any clues? Yeah, so it's, a, it's this mountain from which the tree of life, so-called, uh, emanates. And if you look closely at the designs, you'll see that this scale pattern is probably influenced by scale patterns seen on Chinese blue and white, similar to these lotuses or chrysanthemums at the end of the the tree branches. This looking brown, brown tree is probably bamboo, uh, a rather intriguing bamboo. And then if you look to the outside, you can actually see what look like European garlands. Mm. So this palampur, as it's known, which would have been kind of an overhanging cover, was created in India, possibly for the European, possibly for the Indonesian market. It was found in Indonesia. But the actual name palampur comes from palangosh which means in Hindi, uh, you know, bed covering. And so it was meant to go on top of your bed or on top of the ceiling, and you're meant to gaze up on it and look at it. And, you know, it's quite, quite interesting that in the Quran, there's great um, quotes about, you know, the idea of looking upwards and seeing the sky. And so this image, this mirror image that you were talking about, is actually believed to be a talismanic device in Islam. And so often things with mirror are considered particularly auspicious. So this textile itself is this integration of all these international trends that were happening at the time, 18th century, and would have been traded around the world. These not only influenced Europeans and other textiles, but also influenced wood carving and other media. So what do you see on this, this back backrest called a sasaku from, uh, from Sumatra? The same tree. The same tree, yeah. And somebody was commenting how some of these these writhing uh, limbs look like snakes. Well, on the side of this, you see naga uh, on the side. So this wasn't only influenced by Indonesian or Indian textiles, but also from uh, the aristocracy of Java who were creating these in the 18th century and rulers in Sumatra thought it was, the style was so fantastic, they would adopt it themselves. And the tree of life is complex. Some people believe it's a Buddhist conception of this kind of the Mount Meru, the, the great cosmic mount on which the gods reside. Other, think, other people think it comes from a Persian, it emanates from Persian culture, where paradise or paradise was often considered uh, a walled garden with ever-flowing water living in the middle of a desert. You can understand why paradise was described as such. And you know there are different conceptions of the tree of life around the world. Regardless, it became one of the, the major motifs in Indian textiles sent to Europe, Asia, and everywhere else. So I think with that, we'll head into the next room. So if the 16th century was the introduction of Europe to Asia, in the 17th century, this, this kind of bringing together of Asian commodities and bringing them to Europe, then the 18th century is a distinct turn, if you will. We start to see in Europe, artists creating facsimiles of porcelain, 
of Indian textiles, of Japanese lacquer. So if you look around this room, you'll see, uh, you know, imitation lacquer uh, on your right-hand side, this beautiful cabinet made in the mid-18th century in France. You'll see uh, imitation porcelain, I think, is the, in the other room. Uh, and you'll see, as well, uh, beautiful tapestries created in England, which bring together a menagerie of Asian and European ideas. So you have cherubs with parrot, exotic parrots, and monkeys, which Yue Shou will talk a bit about, uh, eating grapes on these great vine trees, and then, of course, Chinese porcelain in the center. So a great term from this era is chinoiserie, uh, the style of China, and France is really king in the 18th century. Anybody who is smart, intellectual, savvy, speaks French and loves French culture, French art, French dining culture. And so the palette of France at the time, this kind of very airy-fairy pinks and blues of Rococo France, start to influence uh, porcelain in China and other things. I'll just point you to this central cabinet, just kind of twist around, and you'll see a series of uh, ceramic wares and one piece of silver. Now I'm just going to ask you, if you look at these two, this, this large vessel with the kind of feet, and then the silver vessel here. Can I ask you, what would this have been used for? Punch. Punch. <laughs> Maybe not, but interesting idea. Great idea. Something actually along those lines. Not far off, not far off. Any other ideas? Could have been. I don't know. Any other ideas? Think aristocracy, summertime, out in the garden. What do you think you have when you're out in the garden in you know, a palace or a castle in England or France? Hey, you gotta have some champagne. Now remember, there are no refrigerators. So how do you chill your glasses? So this is called a Monteith. And the glass, the stems of the glass would have hung over the side here and you would have put the actual glass itself inside and it would have been filled with ice. And that's the way, when you were really rich in the 18th century, that you cooled your glasses. Now, what's fascinating about this is that this is a Chinese Monteith from late 18th century. It has lotuses on the inside, these beautiful floral motifs, tree of life, probably inspired floral motifs, probably inspired by Indian trade cloths as well. But what's really interesting to me, and I only figured this out a couple days ago, I've seen this thing, this work of art many times, is that once the glasses were taken out, and the champagne had been drunk and consumed, and everybody had disappeared, the ice would have melted. And if you look at the level of probably the water, what's rising out of the water? Lotuses. So not that, un, not that uh, distinct from you know, the great lotus pavilion at the, in the Botanic Garden. So the, the artists who were thinking about this were thinking, oh yeah, after all the parting is done, you can still see this beautiful lotus kind of coming out of the water. Now this form is not Chinese or Asian in origin. It's actually European in origin. This silver bowl precedes this ceramic bowl, this porcelain bowl made in, uh, porcelain monteith made in China. And if you look closely at it, you can see a figure on the side, a figure that looks vaguely Asian, sort of Chinese, a long wispy uh, you know, mustache, very exotic looking clothing. Uh, and this is a classic example of chinoiserie. You have to remember that people in France in the 18th century, people in England, they never went to China. They never went to Japan. They only heard and saw engravings of what these places looked like. And this is really where chinoiserie comes from. It's this grappling of uh, you know, Europeans to try and understand this amazing exotic place where all these fantastic things were coming from. Now the two bowls next to it are what is known as imari ware, Japanese imari ware. And imari is defined by some simple ascetics. Japanese porcelain, heavily potted, with blue and red, and gilded. The gold is actually gold, you know, gilding afterwards. And these two bowls actually come to us from a very well-known collection in Dresden, uh, in uh, Poland. Uh, they were part of the Augustus the Strong, Augustus II's own personal collection, which you can still go see today in Dresden. There's a, something called the Japanese Palace, has about 10,000 pieces of Chinese and Japanese porcelain in it. And he was very interesting, Augustus. He would often, he had a great passion for many things in life. He had about 300 children of various 
colors and creeds. He also is said would trade parts of his army for Japanese and Chinese porcelain. And there's marks on this that correlate to the 1750s to being in his collection, so quite important. Uh, these would have been shipped, made for Europe, shipped uh, out of Japan to Europe uh, over a six-month period, arrived there to great fanfare and to great expense. If you look behind you, you can see Indian textiles transformed into European and Indonesian, uh, for European and Indonesian wear. On the right-hand side is a beautiful baju or uh, coat, which is 1720s, 1740s, same type of styles and designs would have been seen in Europe. And if you look below, you can see an Indian trade textile with the tumpal at the end, which you see again and again and again with these beautiful floral scrolls. In the middle is a European-inspired Indian textile with this exotic floral motif, possibly uh, based on a pineapple, but we're not sure. It's been kind of so denuded over time that the uh, motif has been uh, kind of consumed and regurgitated so many times, we can't even tell what kind of plant it is anymore. And next to that is another baju with these beautiful uh, star motifs on it. If you look in the cabinet behind you, you can see an array of works of art created by European artists living in India at the time, as well as Indian artists representing Europeans. And so on the, this, the first one actually is one of the most important in the gallery. It's, uh, I think, six meters long from memory. And it was created in Surat, one of the great textile exporting locations in India, which was inhabited by this new entity on the scene, the English East India Company. And there are many East India companies from Sweden, the English, uh, you name it, France. And it depicts the soldiers of the English, as well as the governor at the time, as well as the bazaars and all the wonderful things you would have seen in this amazing cosmopolitan place called Surat. Now, what's fascinating is, this is a letter to a Jain monk to come and reside in Surat during the rainy season in India. So again, we see this confluence of, you know, sacred and secular coming together. And what's fascinating to me is, is that the British were seen as an interesting exotic commodity for the Jain monk who would have been traveling there. Next to that, is a tankard, which is believed to have been given to Lord Cornwallis after he did some uh, reassessment of land tax in India. Uh, it actually has an inscription dated in 1792. Uh, gun canisters and mother of pearl created in India. A, uh, what would you call this? A dispatch box with the cipher of Queen Victoria. Uh, this is made from the biggest nut in the world uh, that would have been just halved and then created in this exotic looking uh, package, Queen Adelaide's personal box, from which Adelaide gets its name, created in India or Indonesia, we're not sure. The metalwork, the style of metalwork uh, is so complex to actually figure out where it's from, we don't know for sure. Down towards the right is a rather curious looking monkey, which UA Show will give some insight into. Um, as you may have known, monkey is the ninth of the twelve. Um, Chinese zodiac, and lucky for you, Rusty, um, I'm born on the sign of a monkey, which ah, means geez. I'm clever, curious, <laughs> and creative. <laughs> um, some of you, you may have watched uh, a TV series called Monkey. It was uh, broadcast in Australia in the 1970s and produced by Japanese. Um, it is actually based on a 16th century Chinese traditional novel called The Journey to the West. And this novel is based on the 7th century uh, the legendary uh, pilgrim, pilgrimage sorry, um, of a monk called Xuanzang. Um, he traveled to the western regions, which is India and Central Asia nowadays, um, to acquire the uh, sacred text of Buddhism. And this novel, in this novel, there's a monkey king born out of a stone. And uh, it's a almighty brave uh, kind of image. He protects, the monkey king protects the, the monk Xuanzang and two other disciples to uh, get through all the difficulties and finally get the soldier. And so in Chinese belief, a monkey is a very good uh, auspicious animal and we want it to protect us. 
But uh, there's another fun fact of monkey is in Chinese text, uh, it's pronounced as ho. And this pronunciation is the same as high official. So you may, you may see image of a monkey riding on a horse. It means uh, to get promoted quickly. <laughs> so nowadays we still have sculpture of monkeys at our home. And it could mean the owner wants to, be, want to get promoted soon, or wants to get protected, or just because uh, he loves the animal. Thank you. So you'll see the monkey obviously becomes a permanent fixture in chinoiserie motifs, as you see on this, the uh, tapestry I was talking about before. Next to it is a King, King Charles dog created in China for the English market. Uh, dogs, obviously dog lovers, fascinating dog lovers. Next to that is a Chinese uh, a covered jar, which is uh, opulently ornament, ornamented in what's called ormolu. So even though these were exceptionally expensive, when they arrived in France, they thought, well, it's nice, but let's bling it up a bit. So they took this gold and kind of outfitted it just to make it even more pristine and beautiful. And next to that, who doesn't need a, but a narwhal horn, of course, for your, uh, you know, your exotic collection. And of course, I, wouldn't be, I would be remiss not to point out this beautiful hookah vase that was made for probably the Muslim market. Um, that is beautifully ornamented in these enamels, which became the height of fashion in 18th century France, and thus Chinese copied them to sell them to the world market. We'll just go into the next room. So the 19th, as I was saying before, this progression of, of European and Asian engagement really takes a, quite a drastic turn in the 19th century. Uh, Europe really becomes uh, a colonizer of sorts, Asia, the perception of Asia is quite different from the 16th century. It's perceived as sort of backward, hasn't modernized, uh, and so Europeans take advantage of that in many different ways. And creators in Europe start to flood the a Asian market with cheaply made textiles, as you see behind you. Looks very similar to the Palumpur with the garlands and the central motif but it's made in the Netherlands for the Indonesian market. Now, it's not only textiles, but also ceramics. These may look like porcelain, but in fact, if you look closely, they're what's called ironstone, made in Northern Europe, Scotland and England in the late 19th century, and shipped out to Indonesia. And if you look at them, you see classic motifs, such as the willow pattern motif represented, and then this, this, this kind of melange of different uh, chinoiserie and oriental motifs. Some of them are called agra. There's the, the temple of heaven in China, baskets of flowers we would have seen uh, on a blue and white, uh, pineapples, durian, uh, beautiful Islamic uh, motif, and even local Jawi script, which would have been learned and understood by representatives of these countries living in Java and would have been transmitted back to the makers themselves. On the back wall, you see paintings of ports such as Hong Kong, uh, a, let me see if I can get this right, a Chinese captain who lived in Calcutta, who actually ended up in Adelaide, a portrait of him. You see the first uh, modern artist in Asia, Radin Sala, copied by a Dutchman living in Batavia, which actually is um, influenced by Delacroix's Raft of the Medusa in the 18th century. And more int most intriguing of all, if you want to come close, I'll show you this before we head upstairs, um, is this fantastic three-panel print. Come on in close. I know we're all COVID kind of wary, but take a look. So this print was created after Japan opened up to the world in the late uh, 18th, uh, 19th century, 1860s, 1868. Uh, it had been closed largely for about 250 years. And the people in Japan had very intriguing ideas of what lay outside the boundaries of Japan. They didn't quite know. They had some ideas from the Dutch who were residing in Nagasaki and the, the quite substantial Chinese, uh, Chinese contingent in Nagasaki as well, as well as lithographs and paintings. But they didn't quite know. And so artists represented the world as they saw it. So these are all the people of the known world. And if you look closely, you can see people that look like Persians. You can see British Europeans a rather pompous looking American on the left-hand side. You can see Chinese Ming and Qing representatives. You can see indigenous Ainu of Hokkaido, which are considered foreign at that point. You can also see some rather strange characters, 
such as people from the small country, people with no abdomen, uh, and people with missing appendix, <laughs> which are actually quite, uh, quite uh, they appear in Buddhist conceptions of the world quite early on. So they're integrating, this is fascinating to me, they're taking their own particular view of the world, smashing it together with everything they know, and then putting it out there and saying, this, these are the known people of the world in Japan at the time. A great kind of fact and fiction print. It's fantastic. So we'll kind of end there. Actually quite apt that vast emporium is downstairs. It ends at roughly the 19th century, and then it continues here in the Elder. And Tracy Locke and Elfreak uh, came to me when they were rewriting the story of Australian art and said, we need more Asian art because Asia played a pretty prominent role in the transformation of Australian art. And so what you see on the back wall is on Morris wallpaper, you see late 19th century Japanese cloisonne, enamel, ceramics, which were exported and brought to South Australia in particular, had a quite important impact on the culture of South Australia. And again, were emblems of, uh, you know, uh, wealth and erudition, uh, particularly with the wealthy of Adelaide. And it's important to remember that Adelaide in the 1800-ish circa was one of the most, um, was one of the most uh, well-off ports in all of the world. It was, ex you know, there were some majorly wealthy families here and they indulged their wealth in buying Asian works of art, among other things. And I'll just say that most, most, um, obviously, Printmakers like Hokusai and Hiroshige had a major impact on the Impressionists. And often, artists in the late 19th century, such as Mortimer Mempes, would record their journeys to Asia, and Asia was still this exotic other. But some artists actually integrated the ideas and compositions that uh, you know, those print artists were representing, such as uh, Charles Condor's uh, Day at Mentone, which is quite a famous Australian painting. It's actually inspired the composition the way the composition works is actually inspired by Japanese prints. If you look at it closely, there's this woman in the front. There's a bridge, which bridges in Japanese prints were, you know, one of the staples of the icon of the composition. And then there's this depth, and so there's this great push and pull. If you look at Hokusai and Hiroshige's landscape paintings, you can see a direct reference that Condor is making to that. On the other side, of course, is this oriental theme of North Africa, the Ottoman Empire, that artists were traveling to, particularly Australian artists, uh, and being influenced by, as well as the fact that Afghan cameleers were here in Australia in the mid-19th century uh, and brought with them their own particular culture to the outback areas. Other things of, of interest would be this uh, standing screen created in India, which was actually seen in, ex in an exhibition or exposition here in Melbourne in the 1900s. And it's important to remember that even Adelaide was part of this, and the fact that in the 1860s, uh, acrobat troops from Japan were traveling around Australia, coming through Melbourne, Adelaide, even north and south of Adelaide. So Asia was here in a kind of smaller way, but Asian art was quite important to the, kind of the context of Adelaide in this period. And so these two rooms are based on, on that idea. So I think with that, we'll get headed upstairs and we'll see a couple of works of art which uh, are not on display, but are interesting. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. UA Show is just going to do one thing for us, sorry. So UA Show is just going to talk about this fantastic rock. Um, it's only in Chinese and Japanese culture that a rock could be important. Uh, my mom, at the age of 53, uh, spent all her life trying to locate a rock like this, a scholar rock, um, but she hadn't yet. Mm. Uh, this kind of scholar rock is uh, uh, considered rare and valuable in China uh, because it's naturally formed uh, by the long-term surging of water. So, um, so it's not carved by man's hands. Um, during the Tang Dynasty, there are, there are four qualities uh, to be recognized about this rock. It's shou tou lou zhou. Shou means thinness, lou means openness, um, Tou means uh, perforations, and uh, zhou means wrinklings. Other pride quali qualities of the rocks also include as a symmetry and the beautiful sound when you struck it, if you want to. It's very beautiful, right? 
and also um, sometimes its resemblance of a mountainous landscape, a calligraphy, or a tree. So to appreciate such rock, you need a little bit of imagination. And nowadays in China, you can still find them. Uh, smaller ones could be really tiny or carved in a, a seal that scholars stamp on the paintings or calligraphies or on his books. And the big ones could be found in Suzhou, uh, those traditional Chinese gardens. Suzhou is a city in Jiangsu province and is very famous for its gardens. And such rocks is the most important composition of its, those gardens. Um, its locations could be associated with feng shui. So if you happen to have one, please ask a Chinese person where you can put it to boost your fortunate. <laughs>